Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to follow along, please do so. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom all hidden of all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see you, your good order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. This morning we come back to our study in Colossians after a period of celebrating the Christmas season and all that that is about. And we come to this letter the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers in Colossae, trying to encourage them to stand strong as he argues against the teachings, the false teachings of the false uh, teachers, arguing, of course, for the deity of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of Christ alone, the supremacy of Christ. Christ is one, Christ is all. And as we ended chapter 1 a few weeks ago, Paul was also discussing his own view of ministry, which then translates into ministry uh, views of our ministry as well. And you remember that he talked about the source of ministry. The source of ministry is from God. He is the one that chooses our ministry. The choice or our preference is not the issue. Our our choice is the issue. It's all his choice. The attitude of uh, ministry should be one of joy. Um, There will be suffering in ministry. And in that suffering, we are to rejoice in it. The scope of ministry, what is God asking me to do right now that I can do with all my might, with all my strength for Him? The message of ministry is a mystery of the fullness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, all about Christ. The method of ministry is to proclaim by admonishing and teaching. The objective of ministry was to bring the believer to maturity in Christ And the strength of ministry, which is all the energy of Christ, which so powerfully works in us. And we talked about that about a month or so ago. Now, as we begin opening the opening statements in chapter 2, we're going to get an idea of the goals or the results that Paul is hoping to accomplish as he writes this letter. And before we look at that, though, we need to understand what made Paul a good church planter? What made him a good pastor? What made him a good minister of the gospel? First and foremost, of course, was his relationship with Christ. That that was number one priority for him. And the fact that Christ was supreme in his own heart, everything he did was for Christ. But with that as a given... What would be an essential quality that would make a pastor a true shepherd of the flock? It's interesting, people have a lot of different expectations of pastors and what they think would make a good pastor. Some feel, you know, the, the... 
should be a great intellect where he has a good handling of, of God's word and of, of theology, a good theological education. Uh, churches often look at the resume and does he have a master's or they're looking for somebody that has a doctorate in, uh, in education. Of course, lots of experiences. There are churches that are looking for a 35-year-old or a 30-year-old with 45 years of experience. You know, they, they want all the experience, but they want a young guy. Leadership ability, boldness or holiness, purity, preaching ability, there's all kinds of things, which are not all bad. Those are all important to varying degrees, but as we look at the Apostle Paul, we find that behind all of those qualities, the most basic, the most effective, the most necessary ingredient in the life of any minister is a love for the church. Because that becomes his motivation in everything that he does, in all of his ministry. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul, talking to husbands in the marriage relationships, the husbands love your wives just as what? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, emphasizing the love that Christ has for the church. It was Christ's love for the church that prompted him to give himself for it. And that's why all of those other qualities that we look at for, uh, look at it for a pastor are based on his love for Christ and his love for the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian pastors and elders. And he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Emphasizing why he loved the church and what he did for the church. Paul is saying that if Christ loved the church that much, that he would give his blood for it, then the under-shepherd, the pastor, can do no less than love it with his entire being. And that's where Paul found himself. We're not talking about the church as an institution or a church as a denomination. We're talking about the people, obviously. That is the true church of Jesus Christ. He loved the people that are the church so much that Paul was willing and able and eventually did give his life for it. And the reason he loved the church so much is because he loved the Lord so much. And if you love the Lord, you love those whom the Lord loves, right? And even though he didn't know the believers in Colossae personally, never been to the church, when their pastor, Pastor Epaphras, shared with him what was going on and his concern for his people, it created in Paul's heart such an anguish that he sat down and wrote this letter. In verse 1 of chapter 2 that we read here, we see that anguish as he writes, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. He's saying, I want you to know how much I ache and hurt for you. And he begins to express his love to them through this. And he winds up expressing his deepest desires for the church at Colossae, and by extension would be his deepest desires for the church here at Sio as well. And he pours his heart out to them. And as we go through these first seven verses, we're going to be sitting in these seven verses for this Sunday and next as well, we find five things that Paul desires for the church. Five things that come pouring out of his love for the people that he's never met. 
And if you like New Year's resolutions, these would be Paul's five New Year's resolutions for the church. So he starts off in verse 1 by saying, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you. The word contend picks up a word that he used in the last verse of the first chapter. When he said, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy of Christ that so powerfully works in me. It's the Greek word agon and the verb agonizomai, from which we get the word agonize. He agonized over them. It's used of an athlete who strains with agonizing pain to win the prize, but it's not only in that one race, it's all the practice, the agonizing pain and, and uh, training that goes into getting in shape for that final race. It's that kind of thing that Paul says, I experience agony, contending, striving. He wasn't alone, their own pastor, Epaphras, was feeling the same thing. If uh, Paul describes Epaphras actually in chapter 4 here in Colossians verse 12. He says Epaphras is always wrestling. That's the same word, agonizomai, in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him, Paul says in verse 13, that he is working hard for you. Why are Paul and Epaphras struggling so hard for these people? Because they love Christ, who loves the church, and died for his church. You know, churches today, unfortunately, do a lot of contending and wrestling and agonizing over one another, but oftentimes just the opposite of the way that Paul was agonizing over the church. People in churches wrestle and strive against one another, oftentimes out of selfishness, and then so easily take offense and people leave the church and, and church divides. Instead of agonizing against one another, we, like Epaphras and Paul, should be wrestling, contending, and agonizing in prayer for one another. And so out of this love comes this deep, the deepest desires for the church, which I want to begin looking at this morning. So let's, let's look at Paul's five New Year's resolutions for the church today. Our focus this morning is on the very first one. We're going to stick with number one uh, this morning, and we'll pick up the other four next week. And that is to be encouraged or strengthened in heart. Verse 2 says, My goal... My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart. He's saying, even though we haven't met face to face, I am agonizing over you. I don't want you to fall into false doctrines. I don't want you to get sucked into error. I, I want you to be encouraged and be strong in heart. Now, when we talk about the heart, what do we mean? There's a cultural language difference that we need to talk about to really understand what Paul is saying here. Now, in the English language, in our own culture, the heart is a seat of what? It's a seat of emotions, right? We talk about, I love you with all my heart. Uh, we talk about, my heart cries out for you. The heart is a symbol of emotion for us. To the Hebrew, however, it was not the symbol of emotion. Now, the Hebrews referred to two organs of the body most of the time, and I want to take, talk about those two. The, the two organs that they refer to many times in Scripture are the heart and the bowels. 
Now, we would die rather than talk about our bowels. But let's talk about the bowels. Not going to get gross here. There are a lot of references in the Bible to the term bowels. They've been pretty much erased in the later English translations. Not because anybody's trying to change Scripture, but because the translators are trying to have the verse make sense to us in our day and age. I mean, when was the last time you said to your spouse, I love you with all my bowels? Not going to get you very far. But if we go back to the original language, that's the word that is used. Now, it's used in the Bible to speak of the womb, the stomach, the intestines, all the other abdominal organs. So it becomes a general term for the gut. When a Hebrew says, my bowels such and such, it means I'm feeling in my gut. It's a very, very physical explanation. That's, why, uh, that's what he's saying. Now, for the most part, the Hebrews didn't, didn't really know anything about speculative thinking. Uh, they didn't in- interpret things in abstraction. We love talking in abstractions today. But everything to them was concrete, experiential, physical reality. And that's how they describe it. For example, in Psalm 22, we have a prophetic description of Jesus on the cross. You remember that whole psalm, amazing psalm. Notice in verse 14 how the psalmist describes what Jesus feels. He's dying on the cross. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Okay, that's that's a perfect picture of what happens in crucifixion. Then listen, my heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. And here he means my whole abdominal area is in upheaval. I feel it in my gut is what he was saying. My stomach is in nuts. It's a very experiential concept, not abstract at all. A Hebrew would never say, I sense a certain amount of anxiety. See, anxiety is abstract. They would say what they mean, I feel it in my stomach. Over in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 4. We find a very different reference to feelings and emotions here. Now, this is very interesting, and just to give you an idea of how the Hebrew expresses feelings as well. Now, you've got to have the picture here. It's a wedding night, all right? It's a wedding night. The bride is waiting with expectation for the bridegroom. It's time to consummate the marriage. You know what we're talking about. And verse 4 in the original Hebrew says, My beloved put his hand on the latch of the door, and my bowels are moved for him. Seriously? The Bible can be very earthy. The NIV translates it as, And my heart yearned for him. Folks, it had nothing to do with the heart. Beating a little bit faster. It all had to do with what she was feeling in her nether regions. (laughs) The Bible dictionary tells us that the term bowels refers to all the inner organs of the Bible, including, it says, all the organs of procreation. The heart yearning is an abstract concept. The Hebrews define things in its lowest level of experiential feeling. Over in Lamentations chapter 2, You have a very different sense. You have Jeremiah the prophet who's really upset to the point of weeping over what's happening to the country that God loves. 
And in verse 11 he says, My eyes uh, do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. <laughs> he's so upset and crying so much that he's gotten sick to his stomach. So he's actually having a psychosomatic response in his body to the anxiety that's in his mind. And that's how they expressed it in terms of actual symptoms, not the abstract feelings or emotion. So to the Hebrew mind, the heart is not the seat of emotion. It's the stomach. It's the bowels. Now coming over to the New Testament, even in, in, uh, in 1 John chapter 3, listen to what John says, reading from the King James Version, because they're, they translate it quite literally here. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, you remember that, right? And shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? What's he saying? He's simply expressing that in the Hebrew mind, it's, it's an obvious thing. He's saying, look, when you, when you see somebody who is in dire need, dire straits, don't, don't be cold and callous towards him. That's how we would express something like that. That need ought to cause a gut feeling in you. It should be so strong. It ought to stir you up and tighten up your stomach and make you feel some anxiety. Now notice that every one of these passages that we looked at, the bowels are always responding. This is important to understand. The bowels are always responding. They responded to pain in the case of Jesus on the cross. They responded to a sexual arousal in the Song of Solomon. They responded to disaster in the case of Jeremiah. They responded to human need in the case of 1 John chapter 3. So in the Hebrew mind, the bowels are always that which responds. It's the emotion. They felt it inside. So what was the gut responding to? In the Hebrew way of thinking, it always responds to the second organ that they discuss, and that's the heart. Now, if the bowels are the seat of emotion, what is the heart symbolic of? Well, there are a lot of scripture references to this, but let me just give you a couple. Over in Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus is talking in terms of coming judgment. And he says, I am he who searches the minds and hearts. He's not checking out the bowels. He's not looking at emotion here. It's a seat of responsibility. That is first and foremost. The heart is a place of responsibility. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is wicked, right? It is um, the heart of man is deceitful above all things. And what? Desperately wicked. What's wicked about a pumping heart? Nothing. But the heart is a seat of responsibility. It's what God is going to judge. People's hearts are either righteous or they are wicked. When God redeems Israel, He will take away their stony heart and give them a new, a new what? A new heart. It's a seat of responsibility. It's that which is judged. Secondly, the heart refers to the mind. Where our decisions are made. Again, not referring to emotions. In Revelation 18, verse 17, talking about Babylon the Great and the destruction of the final world system in the tribulation, it says, In the measure that she glorified herself, talking about Babylon, this great city, and lived uh, luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow, for she says in her heart, for she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. To say in her heart is a metaphor for doing what? Thinking. 
This is what her, where her thoughts were. She said in her heart, she thought in her mind. The heart then represents the mind, not the emotions. The heart then, in biblical terminology, is the intellect and the will. Scripture doesn't say the fool has said in his brain. No, the fool has said in his heart. But what's that referring to? That's his mind. So the heart represents the mind that sets the pace, and the bowels represent the responding emotions. So what does that mean? Listen, because this is so important to remember, we've got to understand this. In the mind of the Hebrew and the revelation of God in Scripture, emotions never initiate. Got to understand that. Emotions should never initiate. They always respond. The heart thinks and the emotions respond. That's the divine pattern. That's the way God has created us. I've heard people say, well, I just can't control my emotions. You know why? Because our emotions will only be controlled by our mind, because emotion is a responder. The key to controlling our emotions is filling our minds with divine truth. You see, the emotions respond to what the mind perceives as true. Let me repeat that. Our emotions will respond to what our mind perceives as true, even if it isn't. It's true. That's why our culture is so upside down in its truth today. It's because they are allowing emotion to initiate, to dictate. Truth, then, is based on emotion. Whatever you feel becomes what? Your truth. That's what Satan does. He flips God's design. He gets us to act out of emotion rather than what's based on truth. So many people today act and respond out of emotion. I often tell people, don't trust your emotions. Someone once said, emotions are like bad little children. They'll run amok if you don't control them. The only way to control our emotions is to make sure our minds are filled with divine truth. This often happens in churches. When our emotions get involved wrongly, one stops being able to hear the truth. Paul actually talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, as, as he was writing to them. Oh, Corinthians, he said, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. You're restricted by your own emotions. I bet you can't guess what the literal Greek word is there. You have tightened up your bowels. That's why you can't hear the truth. That's a literal translation. The Corinthians had reacted emotionally and put up some kind of emotional barrier and developed such an attitude against Paul, and they couldn't receive the truth. Corinthians had reacted that way. When emotions get, get ahead of the mind, we're going to have problems. It happens in the church all the time, an emotional reaction toward a youth worker, towards a Sunday school teacher, towards a worship leader, towards a, a, a pastor. Why do you think most people leave churches and go church hopping and looking for other churches? Usually it's because they've allowed their emotions to get out in front of them and reacted to their emotions. 
The emotions have stopped being a responder and have become the initiator. It's not only the church, almost all of our political and cultural decisions today are being made based on emotion. Try having a a political or ethical discussion with someone these days. Anger, hostility, hatred. There are acts of murder I've heard on the news because of a disagreement over politics. It's gotten to such an extreme that truth can no longer be talked about. Everybody's afraid. Think about John 3.16. John 3.16 tells us very clearly that to God, all lives matter. But you can't use that phrase out in a public discourse these days without a strong emotional reaction coming up. Going woke goes against everything in God's Word, and it's a distortion of being awakened by the Holy Spirit. What does inclusive mean these days? Folks, Jesus is the most inclusive person ever. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved what? The whole, all the world, the whole world. But when churches advertise these days that they are inclusive, it comes to mean come as you are and stay as you are. That's okay. Jesus, however, says, come as you are, and I'll transform you. When was the last time that you saw a rainbow on the flag and thought about God's amazing promise to Noah? That he would not destroy the earth ever again by water. And, and that was a sign of that promise. God put that rainbow in the sky so that we'd always remember his promise and his love. Distortions. Distortions. Who's behind the distortion of God's truth? Satan wants us to react emotionally without thinking about it. Again, emotion should always respond to truth. The key then to behavior and the key to the control of emotion is, I was going to say the heart, it's the heart. (laughs) The heart is seen as the mind. We need to plant the truth in the mind and it will control our emotional responses. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart. What does that mean? Guard your mind, guard your brain, for everything you do, he says, flows from it. What do you allow into your brain? Roy and I were talking before the service a little bit this morning. That's the whole concept of Paul saying, take captive every thought. That's guarding your thoughts, guarding your mind, guarding your brain. Proverbs 23, 19, listen, my son, and be wise and set your heart on the right path. Saying, don't forget the truth. Guard your heart, guard your mind. Familiar passage in Psalm 139, you'll remember this one. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know know my anxious thoughts. The heart is being equated here with thinking. My anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Change the way I think. We need to be asking God to protect our minds and our thoughts. Matthew 12, 35, Jesus says, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, speaking of his mind, brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure, referring back to the heart or to the mind, brings forth evil things. He's saying that all good things and all bad things come from the thinking process. 
We need to be praying, God, please guard my thinking processes. Why? Because that's the battleground. That's where Satan attacks by inserting thoughts into our minds and then tries to get us to react emotionally without thinking about it. Let's come back to Colossians. Let's see what this means now. Verse 1, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you, Paul says, and for those in Laodicea, the Christians that are in the next, next, next town over, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be what? Encouraged in heart. The Greek word for encourage is parakaleo. Parakaleo. And this includes the idea of comfort. It includes the idea of courage. It also includes the idea of being strengthened. And it always carries all of those three aspects. That word means all three of those things. Be comforted in truth. Be encouraged in the truth. Be strengthened in the truth. That's what he is saying to them. A strong heart means a firm mind, a mind that has courage, a mind that has conviction, a mind that believes, a mind that has moral principles. So how do we get this strong mind? That's wonderful to say, oh, okay, how? Remember Paul's writing to the believers in Colossae who are falling prey to the emotional theology of the false teachers. And Paul says, I don't want you to fall to these people who are teaching you lies. I want you to be strong in your mind. I want you to hold on to the truth. Yeah, but how, how do we get there? How do we get that strong like that? The only way to have your mind and heart strengthen your inner core, if you will, is by the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 a minute. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with what? Power through his spirit in your inner being, your inner core, your mind. How are we strengthened? With power through his spirit. And his spirit is only going to give you the truth that is found where? In his word. If we don't know the truth, the truth cannot set us free from the lies of the world. It just gets so easy to get sucked in by the very logical and emotional arguments. Sucked into the perverseness of the world and the emotionalism that is out there. Why do you think God included Paul's letter to the Colossians in the whole body of Scripture? Because just as there were false teachers twisting truth, And giving false doctrine in that day, Satan continues to twist truth and doctrine today by the use of emotion. People get so caught up in all of that because they don't know the truth. Paul is saying to us, I want you to be strong in the truth. I want you to know the truth. I want you to be conformed, comforted, encouraged, and strengthened by it. All of that's in that word, parakaleo. And the Holy Spirit is the one that can do it. How does that happen? By yielding to the power of the Spirit of God. As you walk in the Spirit, He strengthens the inner person. You give the Spirit of God control of your life every day, literally, as you pray each morning. Give control of your life to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I give you control of my life today. Lead me, guide me, help me, strengthen me. The Spirit of God, through His Word, will feed our mind and strengthen our mind and help us stay firm. 
It's not wrong to be emotional. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But we need to make sure that emotions follow the convictions from the truth that's in God's Word. Make sure we don't allow our emotions to take the lead and then make up the truth to match our emotions. That's Satan's tactic. That's what the world is doing. That's what so many churches, unfortunately, and Christians have done today. They've been caught up in the emotions of society and have been and then, then twisted God's truth to match the emotions of an issue. Folks, that's Satan's plan. He has always slightly twisted the truth way back from the very time of Adam. Did God really say? Paul is saying, don't get caught up in that. As we close this morning, I want to come back to that word, parakaleo, to comfort, to encourage, to strengthen. Do you know that's the same word, the same root word used in John chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16 to describe the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is called parakletos, the, the most commonly translated, the comforter. But it's the identical word. Most translations translate as comforter, and that's not wrong. That's one of the aspects of the word that we've talked about, but it could equally be translated as strengthener. He's our strengthener. It would be accurate then to translate John 14, verse 16 this way, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another strengthener to help you. Isn't that great? John 14, 26, But the strengthener, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. John 16, 7, Unless I go away, the strengthener will not come to you. John 15, 26, When the strengthener comes, when I... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. See, the Spirit of truth is the strengthener. If you're going to be strong in heart, then you need to be strengthened by the strengthener. And that's the Holy Spirit. What makes a weak Christian? One who walks all the time in the flesh and not in the Spirit. One who listens to the world's reasoning gets caught up in the emotion of it all. One commentator put it this way, every step you take walking in the Spirit is a step like spiritual weightlifting. Just that much stronger in your mind, in your convictions, in the things you know and believe about God. Listen, people don't get strong by exercising their emotions. I've seen a lot of people exercise their emotions, <laughs> but that's not how we get strong in the Lord. Paul says, I want you to have strong hearts, strong minds. It doesn't mean I want you to be over-exercised emotionally. But it means, Paul is saying, I want you to have the input of the Spirit of God and the truth of God in your mind and let that rule in your heart. Paul's prayer for you, Paul's prayer for me, Paul's prayer for all of us is that we have strong Hearts, because if we have strong hearts, we're not going to get sucked into false doctrine. We're not going to get sucked into emotionalism. We're not going to be sucked into disobedience because a strong heart has a will then to obey. You know what the results are? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, As you are strengthened in the Spirit, verse 16, Again, the Holy Spirit is the one who strengthened us. Goes goes back to Him being our strengthener. The results are Christ will dwell in your heart by faith. Read it sometime. 
You will be rooted and grounded in love. You will find a new dimension of understanding, verse 18. You'll begin to know the love of God which passes understanding. You'll be filled with all the fullness of God. You'll be able to uh, do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you can ask or think, according to the power that works in you. And unto Him will be glory in the church. Those are the results of a strong heart. That's the number one concern and desire for Paul, for the church. So guard your heart and strengthen your mind. Father, this morning, we thank you that your word does not change, that your word is powerful, but even more powerful is the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And the power that we have in Jesus Christ Father, I pray that you would help us day by day not to forget and not to neglect the time of spending time in your word. That's where we're going to get that power. That's where we're going to get that truth. That's where your Holy Spirit is going to give, enlighten our minds as to what the truth is and how we can fight against the false truth that is trying to be purported around, around our culture and around the world. Father, I pray that we will be strong, strong believers in Jesus Christ and in your word. We're at the very beginning of a year, Father, and I pray that we will have that strength throughout this year and become stronger each, each day that we're in your word. Thank you. Help us to guard our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.